Now, a siege, if you don't know, a siege is when an enemy army would encamp around a city, and basically they would just camp out there until the, the, they would cut them off from all outside resources until eventually all the people would starve to death or they would surrender. It would be as if an army circled this building, and if you stepped outside, they shoot you. Eventually what's going to happen is you're going to run out of food, you're going to run out of water, and you're going to have to be forced to surrender. A siege could take weeks, months, and in some cases, even years. But as Joab, the leader of David's army, was laying siege against Rabbah, Satan was laying siege against David. Think about where David is. David is alone. He is isolated. And it is in these moments when we are the most vulnerable. When you're alone, when you're isolated, when you're cut off from everyone else, when you are the most vulnerable. However, I want us to notice something also. Notice that David's temptation and his eventual fall into sin did not start with him staying home from the battle. It didn't start there. David has already shown throughout his life, uh, at times, a total disregard for God's design for marriage. If you read First and Second Samuel, what you'll see is that there are moments where David takes multiple wives. A sin called polygamy. David takes on multiple wives. So he's already shown that he has a weakness. And this weakness for David is women. David's weakness is women. And it's evidently clear. Now, the sin of polygamy is very serious, just as all sin is serious. But I want us to see that this seemingly, from the outside looking in, seemingly small sin of polygamy is ultimately going to lead to a, it's actually a fruit of a deeper problem, which is David's desires and his lusts. That's the problem. It's ultimately his lust, which starts out showing itself with polygamy, but as we're going to see tonight, leads ultimately to worse things. And notice this. Sin and temptation always starts small. But it never stays there. One commentator put it this way. As I think of what happened of this, I am sure that it did not all happen at once. This matter with, of Bathsheba was simply the climax of something that had been going on in his life for 20 years. Notice that whenever sin is not addressed, it will tend to grow over time into something that you never planned for. Some of you may find yourself in a similar situation where there are sins in your life right now and you know what it is. I say it and you know what it is. That addiction, that whatever it may be. And you can think back to where it started, and you're like, how did it get to this point? I would have never thought that I would have been here. I know people in my life personally, people that I at one time called dear friends, who have ruined their lives because of sins that were not addressed back when they were small. Think about David. You cannot mention David without thinking of this sin. In a moment, David's entire legacy is marred. We say that David is a, man, is a man after God's own heart, which is very true. But we always feel the need to have to give a justification of how can that be so when we have this sin with Bathsheba. 
See, when sin is not addressed, it will grow into something that you never planned for. But the passage continues in verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. So, in the, in, in the Hebrew here, this late afternoon, it's, really, it's talking about sunset. It's in the evening. It's around the time where people will be getting ready for, to go to bed. And David is restless. David is getting up, he's walking around. The, the, the verb here, it really, it's really giving more of an indication of, of pacing back and forth. And it's interesting, right? Think of where David is. Think of the context of what's going on. David is isolated from his men that are off at battle. He's not where he should be. He's tired, and he's restless. You can already see everything is slowly lining up. I want you to notice the circumstances surrounding him. But then we're going to continue on in the passage. It says this, that it's happened that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now, there's a lot for us to understand about what's going on here in this passage. Because if you're anything like me, if you've been in church for a decent amount of time, you've probably heard people teach on this passage. And there are a lot, like I have, and there's a lot of things that I have heard be taught that are not, they're just not true, they're not in the passage, or they distract from the main point. First, it's important to note that the passage does not say anything about Bathsheba bathing on the roof. I have grown up hearing this, that David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. That is not what the passage says. The passage says that David was on the roof and he saw Bathsheba bathing. Those are two very different things. Because a lot of people, what they have done is they have tried to take this and insinuate it as something that Bathsheba was being promiscuous or Bathsheba was being immodest. I have read commentators who have suggested that it's possible Bathsheba had done this on purpose to gain the attention of David. The problem with that interpretation is that it's nowhere in the text. In this area in Jerusalem, to go out onto someone's roof, which was, po- which was very common Right? They'd go out onto the roof because it was cooler and all the roofs were flat. So he can go out there and it's very hilly. So he can see out and you can see everything. You can see into people's courtyards. You can see into people's houses. See, the problem with the view that Bathsheba is doing anything immodest here, while it may be possible, I think it's a stretch. I don't think that's what the passage teaches. And in order for you to interpret it that way, you have to read it into the passage. Because it's important for us to understand, the author is trying to do something here. He's trying to keep us focused on David. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by all these other things. The purpose of this is for us to be looking at the sinful actions of David. This is why in the passage, notice Bathsheba's not even named yet. She's just the woman. Why? Because the story's not about her. It's about the sin of David. In fact, to just kind of reinforce this point even more, when Nathan the prophet, which we're going to look at next week, when Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David, he compares Bathsheba to a lamb that that belonged to a poor man, and the rich man came and stole this lamb. If Bathsheba is the lamb in that parable, that does not lend itself to a reading that Bathsheba is guilty of David's sin. Does this make sense? And while this is a side point, I think it's important that we don't get distracted into blaming Bathsheba for what David did. I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. 
Verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Now we've got some serious red flags. We've got some serious red flags. It's important to note that David did not sin when he happened to see Bathsheba. I want us to be very clear. He did not sin when he happened to see Bathsheba. Most likely, he had no intentions of looking for her. When he went onto his roof, he was just restless. He probably had no expectation that he was going to see that. The sin is not in what he saw. The sin was that he continued to look at her and then inquired about her. That's, where the, that's the problem. See, the sin of David is not in what he saw. It's what he chose to gaze upon. It was only natural that his gazing would ultimately then lead to action. And know this, in life, you cannot control what you will see. You're going to see things. You cannot control what you can see, but you can control what you choose to gaze at. Does this make sense? You can try and shelter yourself from the things in this world, but you cannot control what's going to come popping in, but you can choose whether you will gaze at it or not. David made a poor choice. Also remember that David was already married to at least two women. He's already married. What's he doing inquiring about another woman? You see, the problem with David and the problem with us, too, is this, is that when you are driven by your lusts and when you're driven by your sinful desires of the flesh, enough is never enough. Enough is never enough. Think about this. David could have had all the women in the world, but would have never satisfied his sinful flesh. And this is how sin works. This is how sin works. It promises satisfaction, but it only leaves you wanting more. Everyone in this room can relate to this in some way. I'm not getting specific for a reason. But you know what that sin in your life is. Whether it's looking at things you shouldn't look at or whether it's seeking validation from others and no amount of validation is ever going to be enough validation. Whether it's seeking uh, th uh, uh, to, to make money the aim of your life. Trust me, no amount of money will ever be enough money. There's a question of how much money is enough just a little bit more. That's the answer. For David, how many women is enough? Just one more. One commentator put it this way, if one woman isn't enough, 1,000 women aren't enough. Continuing on the passage, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The messengers come back and they tell David who she is. We see that she is married, and not only is she married, but she's married to one of David's closest and most loyal men. Uriah was a man that fought side by side with David for years. Now, this is where we're really going to have to get into what's going on here, okay? We've kind of gotten this build up, build up. Let's really get into what's going on here. David now knows who she is. He knows that she is married, but he also knows that her husband is not home because he's off at war. Notice how all of the dominoes are falling into place for David to fall into temptation. You see this? 
Everything is lining up perfectly. And this is what I want us to get. This is what I really want us to focus in on. This is what Satan does. When we talk about being tempted, understand this. Satan did not give David the desire to sleep with Bathsheba. He gave him the opportunity because David already had the desire. You see this? This is how sin works. Satan does not give you desires that you don't want. He gives you opportunities to act on sinful desires you already have. This is how this works. David already had the wicked desire. Satan simply just gave David the perfect opportunity to do what he already wanted to do. And this is the number one thing that you need to be, you need, you need to know about sin. You need to know this about sin. If you leave here knowing nothing else about how sin and temptation work, leave here knowing this. You and I are not victims to our temptation. James 1, 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. You see that? By his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. There's a few things that we see here. One, we see temptation comes from within. Temptation is because we have a sinful flesh. This is why when it says that God cannot be tempted, it's because God does not have any wicked desires. God cannot be tempted. See, James makes it clear that temptation comes from within. All Satan does is give you the right conditions to act on your sinful desires. And this is why we need to be very, very cautious of what we try to diagnose as the problems. Whenever we're struggling with sin, understand it's not because of the things that are around you. Now, those things can definitely have an influence, but ultimately it's it's a you problem. It's a heart problem. Remember, the problem is David, not the woman, not Uriah, not the conditions. It's David. You see, this is the mistake that we often make. This is the mistake that we often make. We think now, now, you guys with me? We make this mistake. We think we are good people who make mistakes, and we have to ask God to forgive us of those mistakes so that we can be good again. That is not what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches is that we are fully wicked and evil. And this wickedness is made evident by our sinful actions. You see? And when we ask God to forgive us, yes, we ask God to forgive us of the things that we have done. But primarily, we are asking God to forgive us for who we are. We ask him to change us. We ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit and help us to walk in his ways. You see, salvation is not that God simply forgives you for what you have done. That is absolutely true, but that's not all it is. See, what we see is that salvation is that he has changed who we are. He has forgiven us for what we have done, forgiven us for who we are, and he has filled us with his Holy Spirit to change us. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. 
To have, to have a proper understanding of salvation is to understand that God has changed you, not just, not just wiped your past clean. He has, but he has changed you. So here's the, the, the struggle that we have, is that we have been declared righteous. In the sight of God, we have been declared as righteous, pure, perfect. But our everyday experience is anything but that, Right? We struggle with sin on a daily basis. We're tempted. Here's the aim of the Christian, is that you want your daily experience to align as closely as possible with what God says is true about you. That's what you want. I don't act this way. I don't do these good things. I don't abstain from sin so that God will accept me. God has accepted me. He has changed me. And I want my life to reflect what he has said to be true. Also, see what the messengers tell him. They're telling him. They're making it very, very clear. Hey, this woman is married. This is a ding, ding, ding warning sign. This is like when the railroad crossing, when the railroad thing comes down and the flashing lights are going. They're saying, hey, David, she's married. She's married to Uriah. You know Uriah. One of your boys. One of your friends. Hey, don't do this. But David ignores all cautions. And I want you to understand something, too. When you ignore good warnings from friends when you ignore warning signs you are destined to fail the moment you stop listening to godly advice is the moment you are the most susceptible to sin so we see the sin or so we see the temptation this long build up and now we see the second thing is the sin so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, notice how quickly everything happens. There's this long buildup. The scene is set. There's this long buildup. We see the, you can almost feel the, the temptation waging within David. You can see it all, and it's this long thing. And then we get there, and then boom, 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 it's over. It's done. The pastor says, he sent, he took, he lay. Done. Once again, we see how temptation and sin come about. It's often quicker than you think. The temptation and the buildup is very slow, very gradual, and the fallout is extreme and long-lasting, as we're going to see in the coming weeks. But the actual moment of sin is very brief. Please be mindful that David's life was forever marked by this moment. It's very likely here that David abused his power as king to force Bathsheba into something that was wrong. This is not simply that he was entered into this consensual relationship with somebody. It's very likely that he abused his power to force Bathsheba into doing something that was wicked. Now, is she guilty for allowing it to happen? Possibly. But I don't think that's the point. Right? Could she have ran away? Like Joseph in Genesis, when Joseph runs from Potiphar's wife and she grabs him by the robe and she rips the, he rips the robe off and he runs. Could she have done that? Sure. 
But most likely, she's scared to death. Why? Because this is the king of Israel. She doesn't know what could happen. Could this cost me my life? Regardless of what's going on, it's important for us to see that David is responsible no matter whether she was willing or not. You see this? Whether Bathsheba was consenting to this or not, David is responsible and guilty either way. The focus of the passage is on David and David's sin. It's very likely that the author felt no need to mention Bathsheba's mindset during all this. I read so many commentaries and all these things that talked about, well, it's important to see that the, you know, the author doesn't mention Bathsheba hesitating. He doesn't show her resisting or anything like this. Well, it's like, well, that's not the point. But why do we do this? Why are we trying to find ways to make Bathsheba guilty for what David did? Why do we do this? Because all of us do this. All of us are seeking to find ways to where we are victims of our sins. We very rarely ever want to take responsibility for the things that we have done wrong. We're very quick to seek to justify our sins. We point out things about Bathsheba, but that doesn't matter. We point out things about other people, but that doesn't matter. Notice this. Your sin is a you problem and no one else's. It's you. It's me. My sin is me. See, there's a tendency for us to have a victim mentality when it comes to sin. I do this because my parents, or I do this because of this. I do this because, and you know what? Hey, I understand, but don't live as a victim of your circumstances. Don't live under the influence of what other people do. Because here's the thing, you can't control what other people do, but you can control how you react to it. Let me give you a practical example. A man should never blame the way a woman dresses for the way he thinks. I'm just going to be very clear. If a woman dresses immodestly and a man lusts after her, it's not her fault, it's his now, are we, should we be mindful that we should not lead others into sin? Absolutely. Scripture makes this extremely clear. She's guilty of her own sin. But I'm never going to blame someone else because say that they made me sin. That's not how sin works. The desire was always within me. And that just gave me an opportunity to do what I naturally wanted to do anyway. We see the temptation, we see the sin, and the last thing we see is the cover-up. Going back into the passage, now she had been purifying herself from her uncleannesses. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, I'm not going to get into too much detail here. When she's cleansing herself from her, her uncleanness, you can ask me later what that's about, but ultimately... What this is, in, is, is teaching us is this, is that it is without a doubt that this baby that she is pregnant with is David's baby. It is David's baby, without a doubt. And now David is in scramble mode. David's in scramble mode. David has to do something. Continuing on verse 6, so David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. David is scrambling. David is seeking to hide his sin. David's saying, I know what I'll do. 
She's pregnant. Here's what I'll do. I'll bring her husband home. I'll let her husband go home. He's been at war for a long time, naturally. They've missed each other. They'll sleep together. He'll think that the baby is his, and everything's good. Everything's good. No problem. Notice, David's sin is multiplying by the second, isn't it? It's getting worse and worse and worse. Notice the progression. I want you to notice the progression of David's sin compared to the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua and compared to the sin of Eve in Genesis chapter 3. What did we have? David saw, he wanted, he took, and then he tried to hide. When you go to the book of Joshua and you read about the sin of Achan, I don't have it in my notes. All right, so remember the progression I just walked through with you with David. Flip, 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 flip. All right. When Joshua goes to confront and ultimately it's revealed that, that Achan had stolen these things from Jericho when they were commanded not to. Joshua confronts him, and Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel. And this is what I did. This is Joshua chapter 7, verses 21. It says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, I wanted them, and then I took them. And see, now they are hidden in the earth inside my tent. What did he do? He saw it, he wanted it, he took it, he hid it. What did Joshua, what did, what did David do? He saw it, he wanted it, he took it, he hid it. Now let's go to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You're going to see the exact same progression. When God confronts Eve. For God knows when you eat of it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I have heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, woman you gave me uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. But notice, see what it is. When she saw it, she saw that it was desirable, she wanted it, she took it, and then when God came, what did she do? She hid. This is what all of us do with our sin, by the way. The window to the soul is through the eyes. What you make a habit of seeing and what you want will get to you. We see it, we want it, we take it, and then we try to hide it. And David's going to find out that he cannot hide this. And you need to know, the scripture is very clear, you cannot hide your sin forever. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So Uriah would not go. And David's like, hey, why aren't you going? Verse 10, when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? 
Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David is growing irritated by Uriah's righteousness. And here's what I want you to see. As is often the case, when someone is living with sin in sin, nothing irritates them more than watching someone else live righteously. Nothing irritates someone living in sin more than watching someone else live righteously. Uriah refuses. So now David must add on to his sins. You continue in the passage, and he tries to get Uriah drunk to get him to go home, and that does not work. So when none of these things work, we ultimately get to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. David orchestrates the murder of Uriah so that he could cover up his sin. Let's go back to the very beginning. What started out as just simple polygamy has led to Potentially, depending on how you read it, rape and then murder. I want you to also think about this, that he sends the letter with Uriah to take it to Joab. Uriah is going out to battle, carrying the letter that is detailing his death, and he doesn't even know it. This is wicked. This is evil. This is terrible. David's doing anything he can to, to hide what he has done. And here's what I want us to understand. At any point, David could have repented and turned from what he was doing. At any point. He could have, when he saw the woman and lusted, he could have repented and turned back. When he inquired about her and found out that she was married, he could have been, you know what, mm, no, and repented and went back. When she came to the house, he could have repented, turned back. When he slept with her, he could have repented and turned back. When he found out she was pregnant, he could have repented and turned back. When Uriah came, he could have repented. He could have repented at any point. And here's what I want you to see. This is the ultimate point of all of tonight. When we see how sin and temptation work, I also want you to see this. What sin will do is convince you that repentance is out of reach. But I'm here to tell you that it is not. Repentance is always an option. There are those of you in this room, just based off statistics, it has to be true, most of this room struggles with sin, a particular sin, and if you know, then you know. And you struggle with it, and you wrestle with it, and you don't know how you're going to move on from it. I want you to know, repentance is always an option. It's never too late. It's never too late to turn from sin. Actually, you know when it's too late to turn from sin? When you're standing before God. I've heard it said this way. With one hand, God is holding back his wrath for all of your sin. With the other hand, he's calling you to himself. And there will come a day where he will drop both hands. Meaning this. 
the best day to get right with Jesus is today. And when you wrestle with sin, which is natural, which is going to happen, understand that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, Scripture says that when you have placed your faith in Jesus, man, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If you're in this room and you have trusted in Jesus for your salvation and there are things that you struggle with, I want you to understand that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as someone who's, you know, a Christian, but they're still messing up all the time. No, when he sees you, the Bible teaches us that he sees you in the righteousness of Jesus. And repentance is a lifestyle where we're constantly depending on the grace of Jesus on our behalf. Knowing that if it's left to me, I'm going to continually slip up. I'm going to continually mess it up. I'm going to continually fall. And whenever I sin, rather than beat myself up, you know what I should do? I should thank God for his mercy. 